Welcome to the Lover's Hole, where we are continuing into 2023 doing our favorite thing, reading the Aubrey Matron books of Patrick O'Brien. You're with Mike. And you're with Ian. And we are getting deeper into the wine dark sea. Ian, where are we exactly and what might we be looking forward to today? Well, Mike, my pleasure. We're pretty deep. Uh, Last time way out in the Pacific Ocean, there was a barrel in the water, and that barrel upon discovery had led the surprise to a Yankee whaler, which in turn led them to a French pirate privateer, the Alastor. Martin had got so sick that Stephen took over command as his physician and discovered those terrible salt sores all over Martin's body. Martin had confessed his desire for Clarissa and his belief that these were the result of some kind of terrible venereal disease that he picked up. Stephen, in that fantastic reconciliation scene in the previous chapter, had reassured Martin that these sores were not the pox. Neither Clarissa nor Martin had been diseased in that way. Meanwhile, as all this was going on, the pirate ship, the Alastor, had tried to board the Franklin, and then the surprise had found them in time to attack. After a bloody battle with the pirates, with Jack badly injured, the Alastor was taken. Wow. Great ending to the chapter as it was. We wonder where we're going to be this time. Well, Mike, we're going to finally reach Peru and Stephen's mission begins after only whatever it is, two and a half years and four and a half books or something. The Franklin and the Surprise and Jack and Stephen, respectively, are going to part company, which doesn't often happen in these books. And when it does, it always means something important for the story. Mm -hmm. Martin's illness here is going to be finally fully diagnosed, at least from Stephen's perspective. And O'Brien is going to take several forays into the text of the Bible, and an old friend, Sam Panda, is going to make a return appearance. Mike, lots for us to get into here. Let's talk about where we pick it up. Yeah, I'm boy, I'm so looking forward to this, Ian. Well, sitting in the Franklin's cabin, uh, Stephen tells Jack, it would be only with the greatest reluctance that I should consent to leave you. And Jack replies with a little testiness, it's most obliging of you to say so, and I I take it very kindly, but we've been through this many times. And once again, I'm obliged to point out to you that you have no choice in the matter. You must go into Kayal and with the others as soon as everybody is ready. Well, Stephen does not like the condition of Jack's eye or his leg. He says his scalp wound is going to be fine. And he's letting Jack know about this. He doesn't want to leave before Jack's healed. Jack says that the scalp wound makes him forgetful sometimes and then changes the subject, saying that, you know, if Sam comes aboard the surprise in Peru, even even though Jack keeps saying it's not very likely, you know, probably not even in Peru anymore. But but if he does, please give him Jack's love and invite him to come dine with them when Jack returns in the Franklin. Um, Also, please ask him what we can do with these blacks that we received from the Alastor, these African slaves. And Jack says they, they were slaves, but having been aboard an English ship are now free as he understands the law, although he doesn't understand how that part of the law squares with the law, you know, allowing the slave trade. And Stephen tells him, well, the government abolished the slave trade in 1807. Jack's like, oh, 
They did. I wonder where I was. Where were we? (laughs) But Jack says, however, slaves are still legal in Peru. And Jack does not want these folks seized and sold again. So, you know, I, I, I love part here where Jack, you know, wants to see Sam so badly, but he's playing down the possibility. Perhaps, you know, perhaps he doesn't want to get his own hopes up. You know, perhaps he's still a little bit embarrassed about this. You know, what we know is the relationship between Sam and Jack and that nobody ever speaks of, you know, the the relationship which must not be named here. Yeah. Um, And and we know from recent conversations, like one or two chapters ago, that this is a potential issue of disagreement between them and certainly a really hot personal issue for Stephen Maturin. So yeah, slavery, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I agree it, with it's, more. it's great that they're at least discussing it somehow here. So Jack's got a plan. Anyhow, how he's, he's kind of very patiently re 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 summarizing the plan for his, uh, for his lovely friend, Stephen here. He says he's sending the Frenchman ashore. There's one named Fabian who was an apothecary's assistant in new Orleans uh, and who had helped Martin who wants to stay. And Jack suggests that Stephen could use this guy, Fabian in the sick bed. And Stephen says, Jack should keep him to look after Jack's wounds, but realizes that Jack doesn't want to usurp Killick and probably fears the righteous anger of Killick and relents there. And Stephen asks whether Dutour is going ashore. And ladies and gentlemen, stick a pin in this question and the answers that come to it, because it's going to be important later on. How about Dutour? Is he going ashore? He says to Jack, it would be impolitic from Stephen's point of view if Dutour were to go ashore. Because, of course, Dutour has his own set of French-leaning, Republican, rabble-rousing sympathies and perhaps a political agenda. And that seems like it would be a bad thing if you're Stephen Maturin. Realising that this means that there's an intelligence matter at stake, Jack agrees to keep Dutour aboard the Franklin. So there's a boat all set, uh, ready, and Stephen makes Jack swear that he'll allow Killick to dress those wounds, to dress them three times a day. And Jack asks Stephen to thank Martin. This is, again, a really touching thing, another little layer of reconciliation from Martin here. Jack says, please thank Martin for trying to come on deck and bury the people. He says, I have never seen a man look so like death. Gaunt, grey, sunken. He could barely stand. Jack is sorry to hear that Martin's balance is gone and that means that he's going to have to leave the sea. And as they're parting, Jack says, Stephen might be better off alone for a while. And and Jack Aubrey does what counts for a confession in Jack Aubrey's world, which is, I am afraid I have been like a bear in a whore's bed these last few days. And Stephen goes straight past the Aubrey's and he says, no, not at all. Quite the reverse. And of course, when Stephen says quite the reverse, what he means is that Jack's been like a whore in a bear's bed, which is a funny, funny joke all by itself. But of course, what he means is a bear with a sore head. But it's all Aubreyism and it's all funny. And it's a nice little signal that these two are okay, even though they're about to part company. It's still funny to imagine what a whore in a bear's bed might look like or what it might signify. Stephen tells Jack, that his business in Peru will be over in a month or else it will never happen. So he's going to leave word with the surprise once he's done. So Mike, we've got a a few chapters still to go here. Maybe this is all going to get done in the turning of a page. Who knows? Clearly, Stephen has a plan in mind. Going to try to make this thing in Peru happen. Jack has a plan in mind too. And, And because of that plan, he doesn't want the ships to part company until the sun is very low. Now, he, he does need to speak to all the commanders, wants everybody to know what they're going to do, how they're going to meet and everything. But mostly, he wants to deceive a ship, a, a sail that's on the horizon. He, you know, he doesn't want them to see the Franklin coming back out. He wants them to think that the Franklin is part of a convoy headed into port. 
while later, under the cover of darkness, he's going to go back and check it out and find out if it's a prize. So back on the surprise, Sarah tries to get Stephen's attention to come and help Padine in the sick birth. Gathering his wits, Stephen says he thought he had heard a sea lion. Now, Stephen's headed down to the sick berth. Bondin's great cutlass lash is healing really well. But Stephen's troubled that some of the other surprises are going to be needing some resection. And O'Brien writes, Stephen was troubled that other surprises would need resection. He foresaw it and its dangers with a grief increased by the seaman's total unfounded confidence in his powers and their gratitude for his treatment. Mm. And it's it's a slight agony. It's, it's kind of like the agony of a parent going, I have to go away here, but this person, these people are my are my charge and I feel like they need my care. And it's a, it's a real wrench to step away here. And it's, again, a very, very tender moment. We're extending this really nice little emotional payoff we're getting for Stephen here. A few moments later, the Franklin and the Surprise do indeed part company. The plan is that Jack is going to cruise upon the enemy offshore until he hears that the surprise has been docked and is fit for a passage around the horn. Once also all the prizes have been disposed of, and once also Stephen Maturin's completed his mission, which he now has this kind of airy confidence about. Jack has a nice half-decked schooner-rigged launch taken from the Alastor, and he'll dispatch the launch into Kalau to fetch supplies and news from the surprise. So he's got this whole communications plan and kind of cruising regime underway here. Tom's taking the surprise and those prizes into Kayao, and Stephen and Sarah stand on deck and watch Jack sail away. And as this touching moment described in the text here, the sun set, and with the Franklin clear on the horizon, it left a golden sky of such beauty that Stephen felt a constriction in his throat. Sarah too was moved, but she said nothing until they were below again, when she observed, I shall say seven Hail Marys every day until we see them again. Wow. Nice. Which is very touching. And by the way, I, I don't know if this is the first time we've had it revealed to us that Emily and Sarah are being raised as Catholics. And clearly they're, they're in the company of Stephen and Padine, but they're also in the company of uh, the, the the lower deck crew members as well. And it's it's touching to think, yeah, at some point somebody decided that they're going to learn their catechism and the Hail Mary and the rosary and stuff. Yeah, I, I, I love this, especially, you know, it, it, as you said in the introduction, you know, no, so no spoiler here with Sam Panda coming back on the scene here. Yeah. You know, Sam Panda, the Catholic priest. So this will be neat. This will be really neat. Well, below, Sarah and Stephen treat the drunk bosun. He's, he's drunk now. He had gotten his wounds because he was drunk when they attacked the Alastor. Um, and, and Sarah's not very happy with that. <laughs> they, they treat him nonetheless. He heads off sheepishly, you know, under, under Sarah's stern gaze. And Stephen goes off to treat Mr. Granger's musket wound. It's really looking good, but Granger is visibly upset. And it turns out he's upset from a visit he'd had from Vidal from the Franklin earlier in the day. Vidal and his friends, as, as Granger explains, all nipper darlings, all cousins of some sort, are concerned that Mr. Dutard's request to go ashore was not allowed. You know, they think that he's a good man. He's not a pirate like the Yankee master on his ship or like the, you know, the people in the crew of the Alastor. And they don't want Dutard, this learned gentleman who loves his fellow man, who offered to pay the price for the Alastor's slaves to give them liberty. 
they don't want him carried back to England to be hanged for a pirate just because he didn't have some piece of paper. Yeah. Now, Granger didn't realize that the ships were already now long parted and that it's too late for Stephen to really do anything to get Dutard released. And Stephen never actually allows him to make the request. He, you know, kind of intercedes as a physician and steers the conversation. Mm. So as far as we know right now, Dutour is still aboard and he's not been given permission to go inshore. Um, He's with Jack and that's that. Now, Stephen goes to call in on Nathaniel Martin, who reports having slept well. Stephen says that he's really puzzled by the history of these skin lesions. He says they are the most puzzling uh, in all the medicine because of the way that they're healing so quickly. Even so, he wants to get Martin on shore quickly and into a proper hospital. He wants to get him onto dry land to help with this vertigo, this balance problem. And Martin tells Stephen that when he woke up, he thought he heard a sea lion bark. And he reports that, in his words, his heart was filled with happiness like when he was a boy or like when he and Stephen were in New South Wales. And this is another really touching reversal for Nathaniel Martin. Just a couple of chapters ago, Mike, he'd said he discovered that he didn't care about Hahnemann's petrels anymore and his kind of heart was growing cold towards nature. But actually the connection with nature is still there. And because Stephen reports having heard the sea lion's bark too, we get this reminder that the connection between Nathaniel Martin and Stephen is there as well. So friendship rides again, again. Nice. Nice. Well, Martin and Stephen talk about Stephen's cases in the sick birth. You know, Martin's worried that Stephen's been completely swamped without his help there. And, you know, they focus especially on Stephen's concerns about Jack's eye, something we're going to continue to hear about again and again. And Martin asks about the patients who were on the Vienna, you know, the Viennese treatment. That is that treatment of syphilis with the corrosive supplement of mercury. Well, Stephen reports that one patient is dead and Stephen doubts the other's full recovery. So this is a little, mm. Martin Mm. confesses that out of desperation, he took the Viennese treatment as well. Stephen says, well, you know, what was your dose? And Martin says, well, you know, the authorities in the books I read didn't have a dose. So I used the same one that we use for the usual pox treatment, four grams. And Stephen thinks to himself, yeah, that the boldest Austrian physician might use one quarter of a gram. So Martin has taken 16 times the amount of this toxic supplement. Now, Martin had been certain that his sores, you know, these really horrific body sores were sinful origin and tells Stephen that clearly they look much like pox sores, much like, you know, venereal disease. And, you know, it's kind of waiting for Stephen to confirm that. And Stephen says, well, perhaps when they were exacerbated by an immoderate use of mercury, they looked a little more like it. But an impartial observer would not have been deceived. And Martin says, the wicked flee where no man pursueth, yeah, added that he had been very wicked in his intention. And this is, this is you, know, you know, really lifted straight out of Proverbs 21.8. Well, Stephen, you know, says he wants Martin to drink rainwater nonstop all day. He's going to have Padine come up with some bottles. He wants to see him all filled with urine by the day's end. And he wants to quickly get Martin ashore for more radical measures to purge his system. And then I, I love hearing Stephen say, for indeed, colleague, there is not a moment to lose. And just like that, we are ashore. Just like after so many 
months and weeks and thousands of miles and years and books and chapters. Here we are. We are feet dry uh, in Callao in Peru. And Stephen heads straight to shore. He heads straight for the hospital, trying to find this place where he can get this therapy for Nathaniel Martin. On the way, he sees a ship, what they call the Bark from Liverpool, which is the other British ship that the pirates had been after. And uh, a gentleman, an ill-looking gentleman, shows them the way to the hospital. And on the way, we get a little connection to nature here. Three black and white vulturine scavengers with a wingspan of about six feet were disputing the dried remains of a cat. And Stephen asks the man what they are called. These, replied the guide, looking at them with narrowed eyes. These are what we call birds, your worship. (laughs) Which is great. First of all, it's a funny joke. Second of all, by the way, it's a foreshadowing. Let's just say one of our characters might encounter uh, birds of a scavenging variety in in, in difficult straits. Yeah, not too long before the end of the book. We'll see. At the hospital, then, they see these two men coming out. One of them's very drunk. And the guide says, ah, I see a vile heretic coming out of it with his countrymen. Which, comes the question, the little, small, fatty, yellowy-haired gentleman who staggered so. No, 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 says the guide. He is an old and mellow Christian. Your honour, too, is an old and mellow Christian, no doubt. And Stephen replies, none older, few more mellow. A Christian, he describes him as a Christian, though English. His name is Raleigh, Don Curtius Raleigh. You have heard of him. He is drunk. I must run and fetch his coach. He is fallen, says Stephen. Clearly, it is the tall, black-haired villain who is picking him up, the surgeon of the Liverpool ship. That is the heretic. And Mike, we've had these kind of observations, especially by Spanish speakers at a distance before, describing people as heretics. And maybe even describing people as mellow Christians, but there seems to be some emphasis going on here. There's some connection being claimed between Stephen and this Callao Peruvian who is now acting as his guide. So what, what do you think is going on with this phrase mellow Christian here? You know, it, it's interesting. Ian. This, this thing peaks a, a couple of times in the 1800s, kind of mid, and then it, then it picks back up. And early you see mellow and Christian used kind of in the same sentence, but it's a little bit later that you start seeing this actual term, you know, mellow Christian uh, in about the late 1840s. Now, there was never a definition of what was meant by this. Um, you know, some people talked about, you know, mellowing like mellowing fruit, like the fruits of the spirit, uh, your love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. But, um, you know, I'm. I, I don't know. That would that would certainly go with our light and dark theme because that's played off against, you know, what are called, you know, the, you know, sort of the acts of the flesh. But I think that perhaps, you know, we've got a little bit something different going on here. We're yeah. going to use the term Christian again in a little bit. And, you know, here we see, OK, here's this Peruvian Catholic, you know, a, a man of little means, Stephen, you know, quite the gentleman, uh, Irish Catholic, you know. Uh, and we're, you know, we're both mellow Christians. Let's see where Christians comes back again later. And then we'll have a little bit more of a tip off here. Yeah, indeed. So Stephen tips his guide, as he's often inclined to, who says God will repay Stephen and bids him farewell and gives the old Spanish uh, valedictory blessing. Let no new thing arise. And by the way, those, those birds now have flown off in the direction of Lima, which is a splendid, 
looking white towered city with an infinitely more splendid set of mountains behind it, their snow capped peaks blending into the white sky and clouds. And there's beautiful, beautiful descriptive language about the landscape here. The landscape that we're going to experience up close uh, in a chapter or two. Meanwhile, Stephen and this guy, the surgeon from the Liverpool Bark, a guy called Francis Geary, turns out had gone to medical school together, had shared a skeleton and dissected several unclaimed bodies together. And ironically, upon recognising Matcherin, Geary says, what happiness to see you. What joy to find a Christian in this barbarous land. And Mike, I'm, I guess this is another Bible quote, right? There's like Christians in a barbarous land, Galatians, we're instructed not to promote discord and dissension. Um, what what kind of Christian are you? Are you my kind of Christian or are you Catholic or Protestant or are you just a Christian from the same part of civilized Europe from the first world just as I am? They're, they're using this idea, this label of Christian as, as Jack Aubrey has done himself a few times as well to say, you know, I'm one of my kind of folks and you're one of your kind of folks, but neither of us is quite as extreme as all those other kind of folks over there. We've had the same thing with the Shelmiston sects um, who've got this mutual suspicion, mutual connection thing down to a T. So what a fascinating modern age we live in, right? When religion and nationality and sectarianism no longer divide us. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, too true. Oh. You know, it, it's interesting, Ian, this, you know, this whole Paul and Galatians things, the whole chapter, this fifth chapter, is is about freedom from religious slavery. You know, any belief system that says, you know, we have to follow certain rules and regulations in order to buy or earn our freedom. You know, after Paul historically had converted many Galatians, he found that later Galatians were being taught by what he called false prophets and that they're, they were being told that they still had to follow all the rules of the Old Testament to be saved. You know, they had to eat kosher. They had to, you know, you know, honor the Sabbath on the times mentioned in the thing. And and some of these Shelmerston sects still have the same legalism. But, uh, you know, one other time O'Brien uses this term mellow Christian in the canon in the letter of Mark when uh, this merchant from Avia is telling Stephen, you know, that he's an old and mellow Christian just like Matron. And that is an old and mellow Christian, unlike these, you know, kind of half Moors and half Jewish Christians who won't eat ham around him. He's very fond of ham. So, you know, we've got this again, Ian, as you say, that, you know, a, a mellow Christian is my kind of Christian, is in my tribe, whether it be like the ship surgeon and Stephen. Oh, we're both from England, so we're Christians, whether it be, yeah. oh, we're, you know, we're free to eat ham because we're not shattered from these things. So I don't know. But, you know, maybe. Maybe there's another reference here, maybe a little bit of foreshadowing too. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, for me, this idea of um, Spanish-speaking Catholics feeling good about not being any irritated in any way with, with Judaism smacks to me of the Inquisition. And as everybody knows, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, right? And I think we're going to hear some more about the, the Inquisition. We certainly know that the Jesuits were very prominent in in, in the real timeline in the the, uh, the pastoral and also the political kind of governance of these these Spanish colonies at the time. And we're going to hear a reference to the Inquisition coming up, I think, in a chapter or two. So let's stick a pin in that. But people, like you say, Mike, are clearly feeling quite smug about the fact that they belong to their sect and not to anybody else's sect. So we've been talking about Protestants and Catholics here. Geary, Francis Geary, Stephen's old friend here, explains that he had hoped to leave one of his patients at the hospital, but won't take him because the patient's a Protestant, not a Catholic. So already one strike, Mike, against this hospital in terms of its fitness. Matron says, 
they certainly in that case won't take Martin, who's a Protestant clergyman, which is even worse, which which leaves open the question of how how about love thy neighbor? Yeah. And uh, how about we're all children of God? Anyhow, over coffee, Stephen explains to Francis Geary this condition that Martin is suffering from and the toxic levels of self-administered mercury or the corrosive sublimate of mercury that might have been administered. And he's really painting a picture to Geary of what a challenging case Martin presents here. Now, as they talk, Stephen orders a ball of coca leaves with lime and what he calls a trifle of yipta. Mike, and I I don't know whether I'm pronouncing this right or not. Let's, let's see where we go with this um, yipta stuff. It's an alkali ash mixed with lime and often used in chewing coca leaves. And we, we might come back to some more description of what this is in a second. But here we go. Stephen's, but he's been looking forward to this for thousands of miles, right, to being ashore in South America and coca leaves. So he's sitting in the cafe, consuming cocoa with his yipta, uh, limey, ashy stuff, and presumably that's all going nicely. And Francis Geary asks if Nathaniel Martin also now has difficulty telling left from right, besides having the balance problems, and whether he's lost any hair besides having these boils or sores. And Stephen says he does and wonders if Geary knows of any other cases and potential cures. And Geary says he had two men in the same condition. He cured both of them with a long and delicate treatment that he learned from Viennese physicians with similar cases. So it seems like all roads lead back to Vienna here. And learning that Martin has the financial means to book a stateroom, he suggests that Stephen send Martin directly home on a ship, a very gentle ship, a very steady voyage with an experienced captain who knows the waters well and will go through the Magellan Straits at this time of year rather than going outside around Cape Horn. And he says this would be ideal for a man of Martin's state of health. And I think this is also, on, on the flip side, saying the eh, hospital here in Kayao might not be completely ideal. And Geary even offers to say, if he comes aboard the, this, this bark that I'm on, I'll, I'll treat him on the voyage. And Stephen says this is all very precipitate, but he agrees to look at the ship with Geary and to maybe consider it as a deal for Martin. Now, remember that Stephen was just starting to rebuild his personal connection with Martin and that he was feeling a little bit of grief at being separated from his patients earlier on. I'm sure it's not an easy thing for Stephen to say, yeah, okay, let's let him set sail here. And precipitate meaning hasty or kind of over, over quickly or done without planning. So this is what Stephen's worried about. What Stephen's sustaining himself with though is this coca leaves and ash thing. Is, is there anything else that we can say about, about Yipta that, that we haven't already said? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, I've tried to, to trace this down and I found like a, a 2009, 2010, very dodgy discussion board of, of people trying to discuss what you chew with your coca leaves and trying to discuss it where perhaps this is an illegal activity and I certainly wouldn't want to admit to it and then have somebody tracing my IP address. So my parent, my friend of a friend, my sister has a cousin who, <laughs> and so anyway, it sounds like it is really a thing about trying to maximize the effect of the coca leaves, but can also burn the inside of one's mouth if not done correctly or leave you with a very black stain. So you know what? Not germane necessarily to our conversation here. Let's let's hope perhaps we've learned a little bit more about coca leaves than Stephen has. And and you know, on break, let's do something besides coca leaves, lime, and ash. Yeah, Mike, let's do. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. 
So we just had Gary and Stephen talking about the possibility of Martin, you know, sailing home on the Three Graces. And in the next scene, immediately, O'Brien has Stephen, Padine, and the little girls, Emily and Sarah, walking low in spirits, mute, coming back from waving goodbye to the Three Graces. And, and they're very disappointed because they had gotten to the cliff late. The ship was already clear of the coast. And even with a spyglass, they were not sure they had seen Martin on board as the ship left. Mm. O'Brien tells us, you know, walking back on the dry, hard, pale yellow ground with nothing growing on it, This all this sterility, all this aridness, you know, does not raise their spirits, despite, you know, they're walking past the ocean on their left, the Andes, these great mountains on the right, both majestic and indeed sublime. Their mood doesn't change until they come upon this very green Remac River Valley with Lima and Kayal both in sight. So, you know, here's this you know, this this beautiful valley helps to kind of lift their spirits. And looking down, Sarah points out the surprise, which she refers to as the poor thing and says, you know, there it is in the yard, stripped to the gantline and partially heaved down. Ian, any, any thought about what's going on here? <laughs> Um, Gantline is a line that goes to the top of the mast that, in this case, you can use to heave the boat over so you can get at the the, the, the underneath or the insides. So she's obviously been lightened and stripped, and she's being refitted and repaired in a fairly long-term kind of state of upheaval here. And speaking of long-term upheaval, we've just waved goodbye to Nathaniel Martin. Like, right. One, one, one minute, Stephen is thinking, oh, I'm not sure I want to send my friend away. And now the friend is gone. He's off around the world. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think you know, sometimes we don't pause often enough for these little back and forth between Emily and Sarah. You know, yeah. I, I love having these little girls in the story. I, you know, I, it's brilliant to me, but, you know, I suspect not an obvious tactic for somebody who's trying to sell a bunch of historical naval fiction books. Oh, I know. Let's put these <laughs> two little girls, you know, right? But it's a brilliant way to explore people and their interactions. This scene here is just, you know, it's just fabulous family scene, a little slice of this small and wonderful community that we know and love. You know, the four of them here sad because, as you say, you know, we were just hearing about Martin. Now we couldn't even see him to wave goodbye. And that's what's got them all down. And, you know, what a typical O'Brien scene. You know, we're talking about Martin, maybe very precipitate. Boom. He's gone. (laughs) We we didn't see any of that. and we even in this scene get Padine, and, and as O'Brien writes, in quite extraordinary fluency for him, you know, looking down on this heaved over ship saying, well, with the barky all sideways, will there ever be tea? So, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't know about you, Ian, but for me, you know, I, I want to say Dickens, you've met your match in, in writing wonderfully interesting and engaging secondary characters. And, and you know, as Albus Dumbledore might say, that is saying something. It really is. <laughs> if we're saying goodbye for a while now to Nathaniel Martin, I'm really, really glad that we still got Paddy and Coleman here anyhow. Yeah. And as they're looking at this sight of the, uh, the, the the livable bark sailing away here, Sarah also points out what she calls the Franklin's handmaiden. And to help us out with what handmaiden might mean, Emily says, she means the tender and Sarah says, well, Jimmy Ducks calls it handmaiden. And Emily says, oh, she means the Alastor's big schooner rig launch lying there, lying there next to the Mexico ship. So here we go. 
the tender that Jack was talking about, this fast-moving windward ship, has been sent into port, and there it is, the Franklin's tender. And now the surprise herself is in a real hullabaloo. The Baki is indeed all sideways, just as Padine had said. Pullings has learned the ship is going to be heaved down without waiting her turn when the Franklin's launch had appeared to carry a large number of surprises away. So the Franklin, in turn, has got enough people to send in surprises. So there's been this minor crisis over manning here. Tom and a few assistants have selected what they needed from the port stores while shifting everything, including the sick berth, into the Alastor. Tom tells Stephen that the captain had sent Fabian to Stephen since he'd forgotten to send him before the prize parted company. Uh, makes me wonder now whether Fabian's going to play any kind of role in the apparent gap left by Nathaniel Martin. We'll have to wait and see. Tom also remembers, here's a thing, readers, Tom also remembers that he's forgotten to tell Stephen that a clergyman had come aboard the surprise while they were all a who. The gentleman, he says, very like the captain, only rather darker. And he hands over a note to Stephen from the gentleman. Now, Mike, I, I think we all know who they... Aubrey-looking, tall, dark gentleman could be here. Yeah, isn't it too true? I'm so thrilled to see this again. You know, I've been waiting books and books and books and books to hear from Sam Panda. Well, O'Brien teases us a little bit. You know, we know it, but he doesn't tell us much. He just opens up in the Alaster's great cabin. Stephen's sitting there sipping scalding tea, a beverage that O'Brien says Stephen normally despises, though not as much as he despises Grimshaw. That's Killick's mate's. (laughs) <laughs> coffee who's been sent along to look after Stephen. And that in in this kind of, you know, dry countryside, you know, the, the tea is not bad here. And Sam is reading and rereading Sam Panda's note. But it's not until we got to the end of the note, as O'Brien read it out, that we see the signature here. Now, Sam had learned that Captain Aubrey was out, you know, in the Franklin, that he'd been wounded while taking the Alaster. He says he hopes, to quote the text, to do himself the honor of waiting on you, that is Stephen, at noon tomorrow to assure you that I remain, dear sir, your most humble, obliged, and obedient servant, Sam Panda. Ah, there we are. What a great way to sign off a letter as well. I'm, I'm coming to show you that I really do sincerely mean this all. That's really, really great. Now, O'Brien reminds us that, however we think we can see clearly the truth of the relationship between Jack and Sam, neither of them really acknowledges the relationship between them in so many words. But they, along with everyone else who sees the two of them together, know as we do that Sam is Jack's natural son. What he's, he's described as an ebony black version of his father and somewhat larger. They're both brilliant in their own different ways. Sam, having been raised by learned Irish missionaries, is brilliant in ancient and modern languages and from the results of his voracious reading. Jack is brilliant in handling a ship, in fighting a battle, in navigating and mathematics. And I'm not sure that that means that Sam is completely pacifistic. We might have to hear a little bit about more of Sam's um, activities later on. But clearly they've got these two sides of this shared character, of this shared inheritance here. Sam's intelligence is more readily apparent all of the time. He kind of wears his learning on his sleeve a little bit, whereas Jack's is often not apparent to people who are having ordinary conversations with him. Now, one of the reasons why Sam is so anxious to express his gratitude to Stephen, of course, is that Stephen had used his influence in Rome to uh, obtain the dispensation needed for a bastard, for an illegitimate person, to be ordained a priest in the Catholic Church. And Sam might even soon be promoted and become 
a prelate, that is to say, a, a bishop or another member of the kind of high orders of ecclesiastical dignitaries. Stephen's really looking forward to seeing Sam, of course, and decides to walk along the road to Lima to meet him halfway in the morning. And Mike, uh, walking along roads to other places in Peru is going to become a bit of a theme of the latter part of this book, I think. Oh, nice, nice. Well, in the meantime, Stephen calls for Fabian. They discuss his background. He turns out to be equally fluent in French and English since he had apprenticed for a horse leech in Charleston when he was a boy. And Stephen, you know, appreciates his helping Martin on the Alaster after her surgeon and mate were killed. And Stephen assumes that those skills came from his work at the apothecary. And Fabian says, well, you know, at the apothecary, he mostly drew and stuffed birds. Mm. But he did learn to make the usual prescriptions like the blue and black draft. And he helped in some simple things. And Stephen asks if the horse leech's calling did not please him. And Fabian says, well, sir. She had a daughter. Ah, and <laughs> we're, we're only left to imagine what that meant. You know, why I had to leave this guy I'm apprenticed under. She had a daughter. Well, Ian, it couldn't help, you know, the alarm bells go off. I'm going, wait, horse leech, that's, that's a little unusual to begin with. You know, that horse leech is either, you know, a large blood-sucking leech. It's usually yeah. Europe and North America that, that attaches itself to a horse's lips or mouth, or... It also sometimes means a farrier, a horseshoe, or, or a veterinary surgeon. But a horse leech's daughter, you don't hear that very often, except for Proverbs 3015. Proverbs <laughs> again, by Jove. Yeah. And, and I was like, what? You know, so the, here's a POB Easter egg for us. And, and wow. it's a POB Easter egg that refers back to a proverb whose interpretation is discussed very widely and, and, you know, with nobody coming to any clear consensus on exactly what this means here. There's all kinds of tradition, you know, in the Hebrew tradition, there's all kinds of traditions in, you know, in Christianity afterwards about what exactly this means. The, the verse itself says the horse leech, and I'm, I'm going back to the King James since this would be where, where we were at the time. The horse leech hath two daughters crying, give, give, there are three things that are never satisfied. Yea, four things say not it is enough. You know, say not is enough, meaning, you know, they they never say, oh, it's it's yeah. enough. So give, give, and they never say it's enough. Now, the Hebrew word used in this verse for horse leech is aluka. And again, I have no idea whether I'm saying that right or not, but it <laughs> means a leech with many teeth. But there's a great deal of literature around that time and earlier in Solomon's time where this is the exact word used for a vampire uh, or a blood-sucking monster. As a matter of fact, in the surrounding literature, especially around the time of Solomon, you know, this blood-sucking monster or vampire can shapeshift into a wolf, is usually portrayed as a woman, a witch, and perhaps Lilith herself. We've gotten into Lilith back in the, yeah. you know in earlier references from O'Brien. So it's an interesting note on O'Brien's continuing discussion about women and how men see them and how yeah. men portray them and think about them. And you know when I'm trying to think about this, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, there's just so many different takes on this. And I thought, well, wait a minute, we're talking about Patrick O'Brien here. Let's go back to Matthew Henry's concise commentary written in 1706. I mean, if, if somebody was kind of looking around here to say, 
what would people at the time be thinking about this? They would probably go to Henry. And, you know, as I read that, he talks about like the verses, this verse and the ones that follow are kind of all summed up as being about cruelty and covetousness in this, you know, coveting things, you know, kind of an intense yearning to possess or have something, you know, give, give, give. There's, you know, there's never enough. And he uses examples like the rich who always covet more riches, vile seducers of women, how, you know, they keep on going and going and going vile women who conceal their wickedness, men of low origin who, uh, you know, uh, have a base spirit, but get a hold of some authority and become tyrants, foolish and violent men. And even an example about a servant who has obtained undue authority. And I can't help but, you know, these, you know, each of those phrases rings true in our current story, and they certainly ring true throughout the canon. And I just can't help but see Patrick O'Brien, perhaps reading through Matthew Henry's concise commentary, chuckling and planting <laughs> Proverbs 30 here in the midst of our light darkness, in the midst of the different views of Clarissa and the officers and the sects and Dutard and his followers and the French Revolution, the goodness of mankind. I mean, you know, this smacks of all that. I'm, I'm you know, I can almost hear him just chuckling in our ears right now. <laughs> Oh, it's great stuff. Really well found, Mike. Thank you so much. That's excellent. Well, uh, having dwelt on this for a little while, we're taken back into this story. Stephen and Fabian continued talking about the birds of the area and how Fabian's former connections had interested Martin until Martin had stopped caring. Stephen goes on to describe these other sickberg patients and what he'd like Fabian to do with them while he, Stephen, is away. And he says, Padine is a great nurse and the people love him, but he understands English, but speaks a little and stammers then. And he's strong and although gentle looking, he's capable of terrible rage. So he's kind of warning Fabian here to be uh, savvy about how he handles Padine, not just to sort of dismiss him as a low servant. To provoke Padine or offend him or his friends would be mortal folly, is what Stephen is trying to get across here to Fabian. And he takes him to the sick birth to show him to the patients and says, He's certain that Fabian will conciliate Padian's goodwill, that he will make a favorable impression here. And Fabian says, yes, sir, anything for a quiet life is my motto. And uh, Stephen is straight on this. He says, this, this doesn't quite stack up here. He says, and yet you are in a privateer. Yes, sir. And now we get to go full circle back to the beginning of this thing about the horse leech. Yes, sir, he says. I was running away from a young woman, the same as when I left the Charleston horse leech. Ah, okay. So the kind of quiet life that our Fabian craves is a life where he's not being pursued by the women that he's uh, that he's made connections with here. So it wasn't just the horse leech's daughters who were saying give, give, or never saying enough. Maybe, maybe it's the men in their lives as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, the next morning we join Stephen walking the road to Lima. Uh, and O'Brien does this, you know, magnificent job of describing the scenery and the passers-by. And he says that periodically, whenever Stephen's on a long walk like this, he just stops to look straight up. So, you know, he wants to make sure he's not missing any, you know, birds that are flying so high that they're not in the ordinary line of sight. And this time, he sees 12 condors wheeling high in the sky between him and Lima. Ah, you would said, stick a pin, right? He sits down at a milestone and fixes them in his pocket glass. And O'Brien writes, 
no possibility of error. Enormous birds, not perhaps as wide as the wandering albatross, but more massive by far. A different kind of flight, a different use of the air entirely. Perfect flight, perfect curves, never a movement of those great wings round and round, rising and falling, rising and rising still until at the top of their spiral, they glided away in a long straight line towards the northeast. He walked on with a smile of pure happiness on his face. And a little while later, he sees his own big smile being returned by a tall black rider on a tall black horse. Ah, tall black. Ah, There you go. The rider canters towards Stephen, stops a yard from him, and Sam leaps from the saddle, his smile now broader than Stephen's. Boy. It's a great encounter, isn't it? It's great that Stephen's been wool gathering and thinking about this whole situation, and now here is Sam in the person. I love that Sam leaps out of the saddle as well. He's so happy to see Stephen. After so many months and years and so many miles apart, here they are on the same road encountering each other. They embrace they walk along together and, of course, they get to talking. And Sam is asking about Jack's wounds and Stephen catches him up, says how the captain had ordered Stephen to leave before Stephen wanted to. So the wounds were now where he had wanted them to be before he left. Stephen says that he sends Sam his love. That's to say Jack sends Sam his love and hopes that he'll dine with them soon once he brings the Franklin into Kyle. Sam is very, very happy with this idea, says, of course, and he hopes that the two of them will see the captain well when he finally shows up. So he's got a little bit of concern for Jack's health here. Now, Sam tries to convince Stephen to get back on his horse and ride as Sam leads him. But Stephen says, there's a little shabine, a little, it's an Irish word meaning a little small place, normally an unlicensed bar. There's a little shabine of two minutes back. And he suggests that Sam shelters his horse in there and they walk together into Kayao saying it would be ridiculous for Stephen to be sitting up 17 hands up talking down to Sam like Toby listening to the Archangel Raphael. And apart from Stephen being a very egalitarian, you might say ostentatiously humble person sometimes, that's also a nice reference, isn't it, to the the story of Toby or Tobias, if I got that right? Right, right. You know, this is this is one of the apocryphal books of the Bible. And and it's interesting, you know, so in this Sam would be Tobias. In Hebrew means God is good. And Stephen would be this archangel Raphael. And it's a very kind of odd story. It, it's a story where uh, Tobias's dad is blind and, and kind of feels like, you know, he doesn't have anything to live for. He remembers that, wait a minute, back before he had moved to Nineveh, you know, he had had a good bit of money accumulated. So he sends his son to go retrieve these 10 silver talents Now, meanwhile, back over in that area, there's a woman named Sarah, who also is sort of like uh, Tobias's dad, thinking about doing herself in. You know, she's been ravaged and tormented. And uh, Tobias travels to this town where she is. And along the way, he's guided by what turns out to be this archangel. And, And interesting, on the way, he's attacked by this giant fish in this river. And the archangel instructs him to grab three specific vital organs from the fish as he fights him off, which is like, you're going, what? Um, So he gets to the town. He meets Sarah, this woman. And the reason she's been so tormented and wants to take her life is there's, there's been this demon who's fallen in love with her and kills anyone she intends to marry. 
But with the aid of the archangel, the demon is exercised using two of these vital organs that, you know, were, if you will, kind of, you know, dissected from the corpse, you know, hence Stephen Mountain, yeah. um, <laughs> and, and saved from this fish here. So that the demon's done in, the two of them marry, they take the treasure as well as this one remaining vital organ back to the dad. And then, you know, when they get back to Nineveh, the last vital organ is used to cure his dad's blindness. So they've got the money, everybody's happily ever after. And the dad kind of being a little bit prophetic says, oh, you know, guess what? You know, Nineveh is going to be ultimately destroyed. You know, we find that later. That's in the book or actually earlier in the book of Jonah. But so we got to get the heck out of here. So, uh, you know, I'm kind of I'm not sure where to go with that. I guess we have to sort of watch as the story plays out. Is this just a passing reference or is Stephen's interaction with uh, Sam going to have something to do with precipitating something great or wonderful or different or auspicious happening? I don't know. Really fascinating. And once again, one of those references where when you dig into it, you get all this other supporting detail that makes you see just how it was not an accident. Right. Very good. Now, uh, by the way, it's it's very O'Brienish to choose an apocryphal uh, book for book of the Bible as well. Anyhow, Sam leaves his horse and his hot clerical hat, and together he and Stephen walk down the road talking. Stephen says that the the captain also wishes to have a conversation with Sam about these African slaves that they found on the Alastor, and and no one on the surprise wants to sell them to increase their prize money because you know that that would be a, a against everybody's moral code and everybody's beliefs against slavery. Many of them are deeply religious abolitionists. And Sam's response to that is to say, well, bless them. The captain, meanwhile, doesn't want to just turn them on shore because they might be taken up again into slavery. And even though the captain does not feel as strongly about slaves as Stephen does, and Stephen points to the fact that this is one of the areas of difference between him and Jack Aubrey, he believes that they should now be free and not be further deprived of liberty. And Sam says, well, do these people have a trade? Working on sugar plantations turns out to be what their trade is. And Sam says, I can probably find them a place, but it will be hard work and it will be ill paid. And therefore he wonders why Jack wouldn't want to keep them on as crew members. Stephen says, well, and he's really talking here about the surprises special situation as a hired ship of war rather than as a man of war. He says, well, Jack really only carries able seamen and asks, well, wouldn't a low wage with freedom be better than no wage and lifelong slavery. And that gets Sam off into his own really strongly felt, really heartfelt condemnation of slavery. And Stephen notes that they both feel passionate about slavery. And he's wondering, I think, in the back of his mind, what else is Sam passionate about? What other causes is he interested in? And I can sort of hear the cogs whirring in Stephen's spy mind here about whether this is actually somebody that he can work with from the point of view of the intelligence operation that he's got in mind for Peru. And Stephen here is remembering Sam's work among slaves and says that that's one of the reasons that he'd hoped to see Sam in Peru. And Sam, still thinking about those experiences working with slaves, says there's no possibility for tolerable industrial slavery. He makes this excellent point. He says it rots both sides away. He says even amiable, kind people become terrible slave owners and do terrible things with slaves, which is a really strong argument. And it's exactly the opposite argument to the to the rivers of love argument that uh, that we heard about in the last chapter. Yeah, so very true, Ian. Yeah, and then as as they walk along the river below them, 
Sam sort of comes to his senses a little bit. He checks himself and apologizes for going on so much, saying Stephen knows all of this better than he does. And he was thinking about it before Sam was even ever born. And Stephen is very gracious. He says, no, 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 not at all. I know slavery is evil. And doesn't, I don't have even one-tenth of your personal experience with it. He also knows the French Revolution of Stephen's youth had abolished it, but the evil Bonaparte had brought it back. It's one of the many things that Stephen sees Bonaparte as having overturned in terms of the purity of the original French Revolution. And this gets Stephen to the point where he can ask this rather interesting and pointed question to Sam. He says, does Peru's archbishop feel the same way about slavery as you do? And Sam says, the archbishop is an ancient gentleman, I think meaning he's connected to the old ways and therefore connected to slavery. But the vicar general, Father O'Higgins, feels the same. And set aside the name of O'Higgins, which we'll come back to later on, Stephen says, well, many of my other friends in Ireland are also abolitionists, and I think having planted a bit of a seed here, decides he's not going to push this point about slavery and the political environment in Peru any further than he already has. You know, having decided to bring that part of the conversation to a halt, Stephen points down because they can now see where the Alastar is. And, you know, he says that that's where they're living while the surprise is being repaired. And he tells Sam how he's really looking forward to in, in, introducing him to his little girls, Sarah and Emily. Yeah, says they're good, well, fairly good Catholics, even though they've barely ever seen the inside of a church. And he'd also like to show, the text says, the captain's unhappy, bewildered, half-liberated black men, and to asking your help in housing my patients if the prize is sold out from under them before they're quite well. And Sam, he went on as they entered Kayal, at some time later, when you are free, I should very much like to talk to you about the state of public opinion here in Peru, not only about abolition, but about many other things, such as freedom of commerce, representation, independence, and the like. Mm. End of chapter six. Wow. It's funny. Two... two these two chapters that we've just had now, five and six, they're short, but really fascinating, building up some of the background to this new situation that they're now get, entering into, building up the story arc as well as a little bit, not only for Nathaniel Martin and Stephen, but also for Jack and Stephen and now Jack and Sam as well. Really interesting, right? They, they really are. I mean, they they do, you know, the great narrative job of, of, you know, scene setting, building the plot, moving it along. But, you know, with all these great little insights into personalities, you know, people's nature, the, this weaving of history and classical references and a chance to watch Stephen do his intelligence job up close and personal. I'm getting kind of excited about that yeah. as we move forward here. Wow. And meanwhile, we focused in most of the time in this chapter on what's happening in Kalao with the surprise and Tom Pullings and Stephen and now Sam. Um, we're still aware, of course, that Jack is offshore. Is it, we don't know. Is he, is he taking any prizes? How, how are his wounds coming along under the care of Killick? Um, maybe there's the chance for more bad blood, not only between mellow and non-mellow Christians, but also between the sect members of the different Shemlestonian communities there. We also wondered to ourselves, have we waved a final goodbye, even a very abrupt goodbye, to Nathaniel Martin, or are we going to see him again? And uh, 
what part is Sam going to play in Stephen's plans for Peru? I agree, Ian. And and what about, you know, Dutord and the Nipper Dollings back aboard the Franklin now that Stephen's not there to overhear them or to intercede in the gun room? Um, I don't know. There's there's lots of balls up in the air. I suspect many we don't even know about yet. Well, Mike, it sounds like what we might have to do, just like always, um, is ask ourselves, what do you say next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? I should like that of all things. to the end for the outtake. Life is full of disappointments.